0: Morning. morning. Uh, let me pray real fast. Uh, Father, every time we open your word, uh, we either become more like Jesus or more like a Pharisee who knew it but didn't know you. And so I pray that your spirit would move right now as we look at your word uh, to make us more like Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Well... You go to any conference or read pretty much any book on marriage, and I can almost guarantee you that the topic of communication will come up. Because communication between a husband and a wife is really important. Because every once in a while, I mean, it's never happened to me, but every once in a while, (laughs) you say something you don't actually mean. Once, Olivia had seen a spider... I hate spiders, okay? And so actually, we sort of flip the stereotype. I make her kill them, okay? I hate them. I'm scared of them. Judge me if you want, but that's that, okay? <laughs> and so she sees a spider, and I'm freaking out, and we're like, ah, and trying to find the spider so she can kill it, and she's trying to talk sense into me and calm me down, and she's like, listen, it's not, it wasn't even that big. It was like the size of my wedding ring, well, that sounds like a pretty big spider to me. <laughs> Immediately, it's like, that's not what I meant, that's not what I meant. We both crack up. It's a funny story now. But, <laughs> but communication, it's not just important in marriage, right? It's important in business. It's important in politics, in parenting, in school. You name it. Every aspect of life, communication is a big deal. And we have created an endless, almost endless array of methods, of ways to communicate with one another. You could text, you could call someone on the phone, you could use Facebook or Twitter, you could do what they did in the old days and have a face-to-face conversation, (laughs) you could write a letter, email, I mean there's all kinds of things, and that's not to mention nonverbal communication with things like body language, hand gestures, eye contact, and things like that. Depending on the time, the message, who we're communicating with, we might choose a different way. We don't communicate with everybody in exactly the same way. This might sound weird, but God doesn't necessarily communicate with everybody in exactly the same way either. In fact, one of the ways that God has spoken has been through prophets, divine messengers, or what you might call uh, spiritual mailmen, who would share God's message with his people. One of those prophets was a man named Samuel, and he's the next figure that we're going to look at in this series we've been working through called Jesus is Greater. We're taking figures from the Hebrew scriptures, and then we're comparing them with Jesus, seeing how they are similar and how they're different. And just to give it all away, we titled the whole thing Jesus is Greater because it turns out that he's greater than all of the ones that we're going to be looking at. But it is helpful for us in understanding the person and work of Christ. Because as we look at him through these different figures, we can understand a little bit more of who he is. There are many aspects to the personhood and to the work of Jesus, and it's sort of like how you can, you know, look at a diamond, no matter the size, Olivia, (laughs) from a couple of different angles, and you're looking at the same object, but you might see different qualities, Right, And so we're looking at Jesus through the lens of Samuel this morning. And we're going to look at who Samuel was, some of the roles he fulfilled, and then compare him with Christ. Uh, so first off, just a bit of who Samuel was. Uh, he was a man in the Old Testament, a Jewish man. And in fact, there are two, bu- uh, two books of the Bible named after him. First Samuel and, can anyone guess? Second Samuel, very good, you're sharp. Okay. <laughs> Now, it's actually one work, uh, and it was split into two because of scroll length. Uh, but it's one work, and first and second Samuel, they take place uh, relatively early in the history of Israel. The people had come out of Egypt under the leadership of Moses. They'd wandered in the desert for about forty years, and then they had come into the promised land now under the leadership of Joshua. And they'd been in the promised land for a little while and uh, the 12 tribes of Israel at that time were kind of ruled in different regions by like tribal chiefs or uh, we call them judges. And the story of Samuel really tells a story of Israel changing their government structure from this kind of regionally tribal um, government into a monarchy where there's still one nation, still the 12 tribes, but now there's one king over all of them. And so that's sort of a bit of the context of when Samuel takes place. Now it's important to understand that from the book of the Judges, it's very clear at this time that in Israel, almost nobody knew God's instruction or God's teaching. In fact, all of the Judges, although God did use them to deliver the people from their enemies, all of them failed in leading the people in the ways of God because the judges themselves didn't really know them. And so Israel's in uh, not just a time of kind of like government transition, they're in kind of a spiritual mess when Samuel comes on the scene. And it's important to understand that because one of the big strengths of Samuel is that he's going to compensate for that failure on the part of the judges. So that's a bit of kind of when he appears, a bit of the context. Now a bit about his life. Uh, Samuel was a miracle baby. He had a father named Elkanah, and his father had two wives. One was named Penina, and the other was Hannah. Now, Penina was fertile, and she had several children, and Hannah was barren. Now, as big of a deal as being infertile is today, it was an even bigger deal then, because it was not only emotionally difficult— but it was also seen as a source of kind of public shame and dishonor. And it could even be seen as a curse from God. And what's interesting is that 1 Samuel, it does say that the Lord had closed Hannah's womb. It doesn't say why. It doesn't say that it was a curse. There's no indication that it was any form of punishment. It just says that it was. What made matters worse is that Penina would taunt Hannah, reminding her that she couldn't have kids as if she could forget, right? Remind of her worthlessness and, and all of these things. This is just yet another subtle way the Bible speaks against polygamy, by the way. Side note. But uh, one day, Hannah, out of the bitterness of her soul, brings her sadness to the Lord, and she just weeps and pleads with God, begging him for a son, and she promises in that prayer that if God would grant her request, she would dedicate this boy to the service of the Lord. In fact, she's, she's praying with such zeal and such fervor that she probably had hand motions going. She was probably pacing or moving. that The priest thought she was drunk, but she wasn't drunk. She was praying, and God, in fact, did hear her prayer and opened her womb. And then about a year-ish or so later, she gave birth to Samuel, and then she would go on to give birth to other children after that. After nursing Samuel, she kept her vow and dedicated Samuel to the service of the Lord. What that meant was that Samuel didn't actually, for most of his life, grow up with his biological parents. He grew up in a different place, in a place called Shiloh, so a different city, and he grew up in what was called the Tabernacle, The tabernacle was the temple before there was a temple. It was like a tent designed uh, for the worship of God, and it was mobile. And so he would stay there growing up under Eli the priest at the time. Now, as Samuel grew up, he really functioned in four main roles. This is how he developed as a person. The first is a priest. That was the first function that Samuel uh, really did, and it was kind of a natural one because he was growing up in the house of the Lord under the priesthood of Eli. And so he sort of naturally came into that role, representing the people of God as he ministered in the tabernacle. He would consistently pray for the people as priests would, and he would facilitate sacrifices for them. Now, 1 Samuel consistently contrasts Samuel with Eli's sons. So Eli was the, kind of the big priest at the time, but he had sons who were also priests. Now, they had made um, a habit of sleeping with the female temple servants or tabernacle servants. And they would also, when people would bring offerings to God, they would uh, take that offering in an unlawful way. It would sort of be like you getting robbed for your tithe by a pastor. Just would be, It was wicked. And so Samuel is consistently set apart from them because of his integrity, and he is clearly portrayed as an honest and good priest. But Samuel also served as the last judge of Israel. Like I mentioned, this is a time where they're sort of in transition, and he's kind of the last big major judge. He, like the judges before, them, or before him, he would also deliver the people from the Philistines, help deliver them from their oppressors, Uh, But unlike the judges beforehand, he was faithful to obey and to teach the people God's ways. He had a a circuit that he would make and he'd kind of travel around the different regions of Israel and he would hear cases, hear how things were going from people, and he would help apply the Torah or the teaching to their particular situation. And so, like I said, he was not like the other judges. He compensated for their failure in that way. Uh, the third role that Samuel functioned in was one of a kingmaker. Now, kingmaker is an actual word, and it's exactly what it sounds like. It's not a king, but someone who makes one. Okay? It is someone who basically has the influence or the sway to decide who can become the next king. Now, as they're transferring um, their government structure, Samuel is the one who anoints the first two kings of Israel. But, not before he warns them. In 1 Samuel chapter 12, uh, the people of Israel come before him and they say, look, you're getting old, your sons aren't that great, we need a king. And he's like, you guys, we've never had a king, God is your king. That, and if you have a human king, it's not going to go well for you, I promise, pinky promise. Well, he doesn't say pinky. But, he's like, it's not going to go well for you. And they say, not good enough, we want a man as a king. And so the Lord says to Samuel, They're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. So he leads Samuel to anoint first Saul and then later David as king. So those are the first three of his four major roles, the four major things that he kind of brings to the table priest, judge, kingmaker. But we're really today going to focus on his fourth role, and that was one of a prophet. It's one that I mentioned a little bit earlier. Now a prophet, like I said, is someone who brings God's word to his people. They would hear directly from God and then they would share that message with the people. Now Samuel, he's the first major prophet in quite some time. He's the first major prophet in the scriptures since the time of Moses. You did have a few prophets here and there, only one of whom is given a name, but Samuel's the only one with any real length in terms of page space. In fact, In 1 Samuel chapter 3, it says that the word of the Lord was rare in those days, and there weren't many visions. So it's not like God was silent altogether, but uh, prophetic activity was at a low. And so Samuel kind of represents this turning point, because after him, prophets and prophecy becomes a more common experience for God's people. It's sort of like he sort of like resets the prophetic circuit breaker, circuit breaker, and so now there's a more consistent flow of hearing from God. One trans, or commentator said that he inaugurated a new era in hearing the word of the Lord. Now, this all started when Samuel was probably around the age of 12 to 14 years old. The story goes that he was sleeping in the tabernacle as he usually did. This is all in 1 Samuel chapter three. So he's sleeping in the tabernacle, and sometime in the middle of the night, he hears a voice calling, Samuel, Samuel. And so he gets up, and he goes to Eli, because he, he thinks it's Eli calling him. And so he comes to Eli, and he says, here I am. You called me. What do you need? And any parent uh, who's woken up in the middle of the night does the same thing, be quiet, go back to bed. And so <laughs> that's what he does. He says, I didn't call you. Go back and lay down. So Samuel goes and lays back down. But again, he hears the voice, Samuel, Samuel. So again, he goes to Eli. Here I am, you called me. I didn't call you, go lay back down. Okay, and so he goes and lays back down. Now remember, the word of the Lord was rare in those days and there weren't many visions. So these guys, they don't know what's going on. So he hears it a third time, Samuel, Samuel. He gets up again, he goes to Eli again. He says, here I am, you called me. And then it clicks for Eli. Oh, God is calling Samuel. And so he says, listen, next time you hear the voice calling you, say, speak, for your servant is listening. So that's exactly what happens. Samuel goes and he lays back down, and sure enough, God comes a fourth time and he calls Samuel, Samuel. And he says, speak, for your servant is listening. And then for the first time in Samuel's life, he is given a message from God to give to somebody else. And it's a tough one. It's all about the judgment that's going to come on Eli and his sons for their wickedness, for the ways that they had been dishonoring Yahweh. And it is now the responsibility of Samuel that next morning to tell Eli, you've got bad things coming. But from then on, Samuel becomes a regular communicator of God's word. Let me uh, show a passage to you. It's in 1 Samuel 3. This is the very end of the chapter. This is kind of a a summary statement after this episode where he hears from God a message for Eli, and this tells about his growing up. Uh, And just as a side note, sometimes you'll see Lord in all capitals in the Bible. That's the word Yahweh. That's God's name. And so um, you might hear me say Yahweh, I I go sometimes back and forth, so it's just a habit at this point. So if if you're hearing me say that, that's why. So Yahweh was with Samuel as he grew up, and he let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of Yahweh. And Yahweh continued to appear at Shiloh, and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. And Samuel's word came to all of Israel. So it says that God's with Samuel as he grows up. And then you've got this interesting phrase that he's not letting, he did not let any of Samuel's words fall to the ground. So think of the image that Samuel's speaking, and it's like these words are hanging out there in the air, and it's like God's hand is holding them up making sure that they come to pass, making sure that they are true and right and good. And it becomes unanimously recognized that Samuel is a prophet of Yahweh. The word of the Lord, which was rare in the beginning of this chapter, has now come flooding through Samuel to the people. And what's crazy is that God had chosen to bypass the normal channels. He went straight past Eli and his sons, who were priests, they were the ones supposed to be hearing from God. And it comes with recognition and with authority. Now that's why Samuel's often seen as a pretty significant figure of the Old Testament. He's a priest, he's a judge, he's a kingmaker, and then he's also a prophet. He meets the need that Israel had for hearing from God which they had not done for quite some time. So that's Samuel. Now let's talk about Jesus. Some of the ways that they're the same. Jesus is also a miracle baby, right? Samuel is born from a woman who's barren, and that's actually a theme in the Old Testament, of barren women giving birth to Bible heroes. That's the case with Isaac's birth, with Jacob's birth, Samson, Samuel, Uh, John the Baptist, and there's others as well. And Jesus, he's in the same category, but it's a little bit different. It's a little unique because it wasn't that Mary was barren, it's that she was a virgin. You ever heard the saying, you can't win the lottery if you don't play? Okay? She didn't play. Okay? She could not have children. It's not just that it was difficult, it was impossible. Now, not only are Samuel and Jesus both miracle babies, Samuel and Jesus are also both child prodigies. You see that early in Samuel's life, as probably a 12, 13, 14-year-old boy, he starts to hear from the Lord, and then at that age, from that time, becomes a communicator of God's word. Can you imagine hearing from a 16-year-old, unanimously recognized prophet? Take takes some humility to listen to somebody like that, but that's what seemed to be happening. Well, Jesus, he's 12 years old. This is in Luke chapter 2. And he also has an experience at the temple. I'm not sure if you remember the story, but what happened was Jesus' family, they travel to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. It's kind of like a big celebration. They're there for a couple of days, and then they need to go home. It's a couple days' journey. They're walking home, and they realize a day or two into it, whoops, we forgot our son. Mother of the year award, right? (laughs) And so... They go back to Jerusalem and they look all over for him and they find him sitting at the temple with the leading teachers of the time discussing the scriptures. And, and the teachers are blown away. It said that they were amazed at his understanding and he's asking them deep theological questions. His family's blown away too. When was the last time you met a 12-year-old boy who'd rather read his Bible and talk to Bible college professors instead of playing video games? Right? And that's what's happening. And so everyone's just kind of like amazed and it becomes very clear from an early age that Jesus has an unusually high understanding of God's word. And not just a high understanding, but a a tight connection with God himself. Because he says to his parents, didn't you know I'd have to be in my father's house? This is the most natural place for me to be. Now, After this little episode in Luke, there's a small summary statement of Jesus' growing up. And it's very easy to skip over, but I want to point it out. And so here, it's going to be up on the screen. It's in Luke chapter 2, verse 52. So this is right after the temple thing. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. You might be saying to yourself, wow, impressive verse. That seems just like a normal verse. But look at the one next to it. Go ahead and do the next one. This is in 1 Samuel 2. This is about Samuel. And the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and favor with the Lord and with men. Those seem pretty similar, don't they? This is not a coincidence. Luke, especially in the first uh, three, four chapters, sprinkles in language and allusions to Samuel's life and is comparing the two. And not just in this case. He does it with, with Mary and Hannah and the ways that they pray. And he does it in a few other ways as well. It's what I like to call a literary wink. It's as if he's kind of nudging you a little bit. And if you read your scriptures and you soak in them and you know them, you kind of start to pick up on these little subtle allusions and they're all over the place. It's not just Luke who does this. Almost every, I think maybe every book in the Bible has things like this in it. And it's like Luke is saying to us, hey, remember Samuel. Jesus is kind of like Samuel, but he's better. Now, how specifically is he better? Well, we focused on Samuel's role as a prophet, and so we're going to look at how Jesus is better than Samuel through the lens of prophet. Now, he's clearly also better as a priest, a judge, and not just kingmaker, but king. But those are other sermons in this series. And so you can hop online at fleda.org and listen to those. The one about king is coming next month. But let's talk about Jesus as a prophet. Now, if the key feature of a prophet is that he is a spokesperson for God, then one of the best passages to look at right now is, is uh, Hebrews chapter 1. It says here, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So it says right here that in the past, God spoke at various times and in various ways. Remember me saying that God doesn't communicate in exactly the same way to everybody? Well, one of those times and one of those ways was Samuel. But now, how has he spoken? By his son, the son who has been appointed the heir of all things. The Son, who is the person through whom the entire universe has been made. That cannot be said of Samuel or any other prophet. And look at verse 3 here. The radi- he is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. And then notice this next phrase sustaining all things by his powerful word. So you remember that image from 1 Samuel 3? Where Samuel would speak and then God wouldn't let any of his words fall to the ground as if God's holding up Samuel's words. But when Jesus speaks, his words don't need holding up. They, in fact, are doing the sustaining. Do you see the superiority here? As faithful as Samuel was to declare God's word to his people, he still needed God to sustain them because he was a human. His words had inherent weakness. Now Jesus, who was a man, but much more than just a man, has a much more powerful word, and when he speaks, they don't need to be sustained. In fact, they sustain all things. So your beating heart and your breathing lungs right now are held up by the word of Christ. Gravity, the laws of physics, all of life exists because Jesus tells them to. Jesus' words when he was walking here on earth during his ministry, they brought a dead man back to life. They healed blind eyes. He controlled the weather with nothing but his tongue. His words have power, a power unlike anything else. In fact, many times it says in the scriptures that when Jesus spoke and he taught, the people were amazed, they're blown away. Because he had authority. They had power in them that the other teachers didn't have. And remember, Samuel's words, it came with authority and recognition. Jesus' words are coming with authority and recognition. He is not like the teachers of his time. But nor was he exactly like the prophets of old either. Let me i do a little experiment with you and just show you this contrast by reading a few verses. These are all going to be up on the screen, and just I just want you to listen. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made. Their starry host by the breath of his mouth, for he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm, the word of God, creating and sustaining all of life. The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. Joshua said to the Israelites, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. The word of the Lord came to Nathan. The word of the Lord came to Solomon. The word of the Lord came to Elijah. The word of the Lord came to Isaiah. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. The word of the Lord came to Haggai. The word of the Lord came to Zechariah. And then finally, the word became flesh, and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. In all the writings of Christ, there is a glaring absence. It never says the word of the Lord came to Jesus. Instead, it says that the word who was Jesus came to us. Jesus is the definitive word of God. He is both the message and the messenger. Do you remember show and tell as a kid where you'd bring some little object and you'd get to talk about it and as you talk about it, people can see? All the prophets before Christ, all they could do was just tell you what God was like. Jesus came and he did show and tell. I mean, that's exactly what John is saying here. Because he's come, we have seen God. That's exactly the point that Hebrews make when it says that he's the exact representation of his being. That's what Paul says in Colossians when he says he's the image of the invisible God. As a result of Jesus coming, we have now seen God himself. You guys, this is a key distinctive of Christianity because there are plenty of people in the world today that will agree that Jesus was a great teacher, that he was a good spiritual leader, the Muslims honor him and respect him as a prophet, but he was more than a prophet. Many Buddhists will tell you, "Yeah, he was an enlightened man. He was a good teacher. Maybe he even reached nirvana." But he's not an enlightened teacher. He is much more than that. He is much more than a prophet, much more than a spokesperson. He is God's message in a man. You see there's a there's a belief floating around the world today. It's pretty common that all the major religions, we're all just kind of searching for the same thing from various different paths. We're climbing the same mountain, but we're on different trails. Or we're coming to the same building from different doors, or however they want to describe it. And sure, there are some common um, values. We might, we might believe some of the same things about morality. We might believe in the idea of a creator. But once you get past some of those lowest common denominator similarities, they disappear real quickly once you get into the substance and the distinctives of those different faiths. The fact that Jesus is the word of God, which is another way of saying that he is God, that sets us apart, not in a proud way, not in a mean way, but that makes us different than Muslims, than Buddhists, than people who would say that Jesus was a great teacher. He's got wonderful teachings, but he wasn't God himself. They might respect What he said, but they ignore who he was. And I'm not saying this to be aggressive or mean, but we have to be clear on who Jesus was. He was not just a prophet, he was not just an enlightened teacher or a good leader. Jesus doesn't just tell us God's word, he is God's word. And here's why that matters think of the other words that you get or the other messages you encounter on a day to day basis. Do you find NPR, CNN, or Fox News to be life-giving? Do you think your favorite sitcom or Netflix drama is going to endure into eternity? Would you pay silver or gold to read a few more emails or text messages? Is your social media sweeter than honey? Has a movie theater ever brought you eternal joy? They can't. Even the messages, even the maybe cards or letters or phone recordings that you might save from people you love, cherished messages that are really good, they don't have the power to create and sustain life, much less to atone for your sins or bring healing from the sins that have been committed against you. Only Jesus Christ can do that. For us to not have access to God's word would be like a fish not having access to water, Deuteronomy 8.3 says that humans, we cannot live on bread alone, but from every word that comes from the mouth of God. Whether, hum, whether we recognize it or not, our life is sustained, is created and sustained by God's words. We all need them, whether we recognize it or not. And here's just a few characteristics, a few, a few things that the Bible tells us about God's word. There's, this should be on the handout as well. God's word, it is life giving and life sustaining. When he spoke, it came into existence. God's word fulfills its purpose, it is unshakable. In Isaiah 55, my my word will not return to me void. When I send my word, God says, it will do what I intend for it to do. No ifs, ands, or buts. It will happen. It will endure forever. It is sweeter than honey. It is more valuable than gold. It has power to it. It is true. It is reliable. You can trust what God's word says. It is decisive. And so, for all of these reasons, and there's more, it's a very big deal to us that Jesus is God's word because he is all of those things. Now for all of our human abilities to understand the world around us, we cannot figure God out on our own. So maybe the most significant thing about Jesus being God's word, why that's a big deal, is that we can know God. Sure, you could gather a few things about God from creation, but we really need God to show us who God is. We can't get it on our own. And when we try, we would be lost. We, we end up in a complete mess. That's where the nation of Israel was before Samuel, and that's where all of humanity, every single human, is before they come to Jesus Christ. When we don't know God's word, we don't know God. Now, uh, before I wrap up, I want to say something about the Bible, because I've been throwing around phrases like God's word, word of God, word of the Lord, and most of us, when we hear those kinds of phrases, we think of the Bible, I know I do, right? But when we say that Jesus was God's word, you, I mean, we instinctively know that we don't mean that Jesus was a book. Or when it says that the word of the Lord came to Samuel, we instinctively don't think that he got like an Amazon package with a Bible in it. Okay? It means something else. Um, and so, just at its most basic level, the word of God is God's message. It's his self-revelation to us. It is how God tells us about himself. Now that happens most clearly and absolutely in the person, of Je- person and work of Jesus Christ. Now how that relates to the Bible, if we didn't have the Bible, what access would you have to the person and work of Jesus Christ? You wouldn't. We live in a time where God has given us the scriptures to show us Jesus. And not just the New Testament, all of the scriptures point to Christ. The best way I've heard it phrased is that we study the written word to know the living word, Jesus Christ. Okay? And so we know the person and work of Christ through the words of scripture. That's where we encounter him. Do you ever find it interesting that it says that we have seen him that's what John said. When there's relatively little physical description of Jesus in the scriptures, we learn about him. We learn, we do see him kind of with the eyes of our hearts as we read scripture. And in a world of sound bites, echo chambers, and ultimately lifeless messages, that's exactly what we need. We need something more substantial that can give us life and hope, something that deals with our failures. It deals with the hurts that we've caused others, the hurts that others have caused us. We need something that teaches us how to live in a way that honors God and brings us joy. We need something that makes sense of the world and tells us how to live in it. We don't need more of man's great ideas. We need to hear from God Himself. I opened this sermon talking about communication being important in marriage and then in kind of all of life because it's important to say what we mean. It's important for people to know what we want them to hear. So if you want to know what God has intended to say to you, if you want to know what God is like, that is found ultimately and absolutely and exclusively in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And you'll learn who he is through reading this book. And studying it. And knowing it. Jesus is greater than Samuel because he is the living word of God. He gives us what Samuel and every other prophet could not. Let me close in prayer. Uh, Father, I thank you that you have not uh, left yourself without witness. That we are not fumbling around in the dark trying to figure out who you are. That Father, you have shown us who you are when you sent your son, Jesus, to live among us, to die for our sins, to be raised from the dead. Lord, we have learned who you are through him. I pray, God, that you would um, continue to open our eyes. This is not a lack of communication on your part. You have made yourself abundantly clear. Would you please, Lord, Help us to see more clearly who Jesus is. Lord, I pray for anyone in this room who feels like they want to hear from you, they want to know you. Lord, would you please speak to them through your word. In Jesus' name, amen.